0: Please be seated. Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I'd also like to welcome you if you're a visitor with us this morning. Uh, We are in a series on the book of Genesis, starting right at the very beginning. So if you turn to page one, you'll be in exactly the right place of your Bible. If you uh, need one to read, you can find one in front of one of the chairs in front of you. And uh, this summer, we're going through Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which kind of tell the story about the, the beginning of, the th- of things, in, in the beginning. It talks about all the big questions. Who are we? Who is God? How are we to relate to Him? What went, what's right about the world? What went so very wrong? Genesis takes up all this stuff right at the beginning of the story, literally the story of the Bible, and for us also the story of our lives, as it speaks into those questions for us. This morning we'll be in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then we'll turn over to chapter 2 and begin at verse 4. Let me pray for us and we'll we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, this morning for the opportunity we have to be here to worship you, to give expression to our praise, to pray to you, hear your word from Scripture. Um, We're in need of a word from you. Some of us come. um, Glad to be here this morning. ready to be here. Some of us come distracted, some of us come hurt, some of us come um, from all kinds of places. But you are our God. You have promised to meet us here. None of us are here by accident. So now let us attend to your word together as you speak to us. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and then picking up in chapter 2, verse 4. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon; It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Okay, let me ask you this question. For those of you that are visitors, rhetorical question. Presbyterians don't shout out answers and public services. Here's the question. When you think of this word, when you think of the word work, what comes to mind? Okay, what are, what are some of the associations that come to mind? What are, what are some of the, um, the maybe the, the different types of work you've done that come to mind? Or maybe even the emotions that it evokes? Or the repulsion maybe it evokes? Or the anxieties? What are the thoughts that come to mind when you think of work? You know, everywhere we turn in life, we're faced, with the reality. we're faced with the reality of work. I mean, everywhere we look, it's what we spend so much of our life doing. So how should we think about it? How do we think about our work? And what does the Bible teach us about our work? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. We see here in Genesis 1 and 2 the trajectory of what Scripture teaches us about our work and how to think about it. So we're going to look here uh, in chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to see uh, four things about work. The created goodness of our work, the scope of our work, the dilemma of our work, and the redemption of our work. Okay, first, the created goodness of our work. One of the first things that stands out in Genesis 1, and if we were to back up to the very beginning of the beginning, start reading again from verse 1, we'd see that every step of the way that God works, He's at work. He's a worker. He's making stuff he 's doing stuff he 's creating stuff, he 's bringing order into the world he 's speaking the word, and things come into being uh, amazingly with his divine and sovereign power. God works, and he gets his hands dirty, even I mean, uh, if you look back at chapter two, verse seven, what does he do? You know in chapter one, we have this overall panoramic picture of creation, and then chapter two, it switches the point of view switches, and we have this close up of uh, one portion of creation when the author comes back and tells us about what happens in the creation of man on the sixth day. But you get down to verse 7 as God is, uh, is preparing for this. In verse 7 it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And in the very beginning you've got God saying, Let there be light, and there's light. But now in chapter 2 what do you have? You have God the craftsman stooping down building, forming, shaping, sculpting a person out of the ground and breathing life into him. God is at work even getting his hands dirty. Right after that, what do we see that God does with mankind? He puts us to work. Look at verse 15, chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He puts him in the garden and puts him to work. Adam, from day one of creation, he becomes uh, a gardener that God puts in his service. Okay, all that just, I think, highlights the incredibly simple point that we often overlook, and that's this. That work is a product of creation, not a product of the fall. The work existed before everything goes wrong in chapter 3. We're going to get there in a couple weeks, and everything does go wrong. But work is a part of God's goodness of creation. So whatever else we're going to think about work and the realities of struggling with it, we have to start there. That is a part of God's good creation. It's a part of the Garden of Eden where life was at its most perfect, where everything worked the way it was supposed to, where mankind was in perfect relationship with each other, with the land, with their God. What did people do? They worked. Okay, work was created good. But the second thing we see here in this passage is some of the scope of our work. Work is a is part of the central calling of what it means for us to be men and women created in the image of God, something we talked about at length last week. God creates men and men and women in his image and then as soon as he does that if you look back in that first those first verses we read 26 through 28 of chapter 1 Look, what does it say? He says, we are created in God's image. And then, he says, go and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. As soon as he says he creates us in his image, the outworking of that is that we are to to rule over the world in God's stead. That we are to go to work as hands and feet of God in this world that he's given us. And so work becomes central for us. It's such an important part of the way we both spend our time and our weeks. Think Think of how much... Time in every day is spent in work of one kind or another. Or how much time every week is spent work of one kind or another. It's central to our calling. Uh, theologians for ages past have gone back to these first few verses in chapter 1 and referred to them as the cultural mandate. It's where God gives us as humankind the command to go and to do work, to make culture, to make something out of the world that he's given us. Here's the way... Um, One author, Nancy Piercy, writes of this in her book, Total Truth. She says, In Genesis, God gives what we might call the first job description. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, to plant crops, to build bridges design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, to build civilizations, nothing less. It's a part of how we work out our calling to image God. Now it's important, even with with the scope of a definition like that, that we recognize when we talk about work, when I talk about work right now, when the Bible talks about work, it's not talking about the same thing as a job. Okay, which is how we often think about it. What's your work? Well, let me tell you about my job. Work encompasses all of the many kinds of work that we do in the world in the different arenas of our lives. It includes going off to a job, but it's so much more. Raising our children, cleaning our homes, gardening in the backyard, studying for a class, tutoring kids after school, volunteering at the Jamestown Settlement, you name it, work going into the world and doing something with it, creating something out of it. Let me give, give what I think are a couple of helpful images of what it means for us to be workers in the world. Um, the, the, there's a book that's been helpful to me called Culture Making by Andy Crouch, and it's an excellent survey of what does it mean that we are culture makers. And in that book, Crouch talks about the fact that we are both creators and cultivators. That's what it means to be workers following after in the image of God, that we're creators and cultivators. And the the picture he gives us of those two things is the artist and the gardener. He says that we are both of those things. And we see God showing that that to us himself. Chapter 2, verse 8, God, what does he do? God, he plants a garden. He doesn't merely do the big picture work of creation, speaking everything into existence. He goes down to a particular work, and he fashions something out of this world that he's made. He creates a garden, he plants a garden. He puts just the right trees in, in just the right place. Thinks about where he puts the flowers. Thinks about where he puts the crops. He plants a garden. And then he puts Adam there to work it and to keep it, to cultivate it. And to create as he follows his God. He puts Adam in the middle of a land that is rich in natural resources. Have you ever wondered what all those verses are in chapter 2 about the rivers that flow through and there's gold and who knows what bdellium is? I can't even say it. And, you know, what's he saying? He's drawing a picture uh, of a land that is rich in potential. Now, somebody I read this and it never occurred to me. Do you know that Eden was in the mountains? I mean, that's the appropriate place for it, isn't it? But he said, what does it say? He says, it is the headwaters of these rivers. Rivers start in the mountains. This place called Eden, God carves out one little corner of it and makes a garden. There's gold in the land. There's natural resources. He gives mankind everything he needs to follow in God's footsteps, to be creators and cultivators themselves. Then in uh, chapter 2, verse 19, what does Adam do once God has put him in the garden? God brings before him all of the animals of the world, and Adam names those. Okay, now several things are going on here. One is that mankind's been called to rule over God's creation, and so to speak the name of something, to give a name to something, is one way in which Adam exercised that rulership. He was bestowing names just as God bestows names. The other thing, that act of ruling, it's work. God puts him to work. He says, Adam, your first work is a creative kind of work. You're going to speak into the identity of all the animals of the world. And you're going to tend this garden. You're going to both cultivate what I've given you in this world. and You're going to do something creative with it. You are both a gardener and an artist. I've given you all the raw materials you need to do your work. This work is a part of the bigger picture of creating culture. Ken Myers, a speaker and writer, says this, Culture is what we make of the world. It's what we make out of what the world gives us. Another way of saying that, what we make out of what God gives to us in the world. Johann Kepler, an astronomer, said this, that science is the work of thinking God's thoughts after him maybe that gives a window on how we can think about about our work our work is an invitation to do god's work after him as we mirror him as workers ourselves okay that means that god cares about our work god cares about the good things that he made he cares about us and he puts us in the world to work he cares about our work our work in all its varied kinds matters to god I think that's an important point to sink home for us because we forget that or we easily can. in the way we tend to maybe over-spiritualize some aspects of our lives or what it means to really follow after God, it tells us that work is not somehow offline of the real concerns about God for us and what we're up to in this world. It's not as if God's real concern for us was primarily some sort of interior and privatized uh, religious experience for us. Or if the, as if the only thing God cares about were our religious duties. Coming to church on Sunday, reading our Bibles, uh, tithing. You, know, you, you can come up with a list. It's not as if God simply cares about those religious activities. Not as if he only cared about maybe the relational aspects of our lives. What God really cares about is how I'm treating my neighbor, treating my spouse, I'm relating to other people. Of course, all of those matter incredibly to God. They're all part of his central concern in our life, but it's not the only thing that he cares about. God cares about our work. And he cares not only about how we do our work, and he does, but he cares about the work itself. Good work pleases him, just as his own good work pleased him. Martin Luther was once approached by a cobbler, a shoemaker, who wanted to know what it meant now that he had become a Christian to follow God faithfully. And he was expecting Luther to say something like, well, you need to go to seminary and you need to go into full-time professional ministry. And instead, Luther looked at him and he said, here's how you serve God. He says, go make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. You're a cobbler. Do your work well. Contribute to the good of your community around you. God cares about our work itself. Okay, so yesterday... Uh, My wife and I, we have four children, age five and under, so we're at a phase in life where life is full. It is for many of us, and it's probably true to every phase of life, but it is for ours right now. So Saturday morning means it's game on. Elizabeth is at the grocery store, and she's actually having the freedom to go there without toting four kids around. So I've got the kids, and I'm mopping the kitchen floor. Okay, now, mopping the floor. God cares about mopping the floor. Now, He doesn't only care that in the midst of the chaos in my family, that I don't bark at my kids while I'm trying to get it clean. He does care about that. He doesn't only care that, uh, you know, that I really give it some atten- attention to the duty at hand and not just do a slipshod job. He does care about that. But it occurs to me, he also cares about this. If you've ever mopped a floor and you have small children, you finish and you step back. And for 43 seconds... <laughs> Everything is pristinely clean. And that moment where the world is just the way it's meant to be in all its perfection, God cares about that too. A job well done, order restored to the world. Now He cares about it in the next second when my kids come traipsing through and it's all undone. That's all good too. But God cares about our work no matter or how menial it might be or might seem to us. So if you're a student, that means that God cares about the paper that you're writing. Not simply that you write that paper without any plagiarism. Of course He cares about that. But He cares that it be creative and well-researched and carefully expressed. God, too, takes pleasure in a paper well-written. Maybe you know what that's like when you finish and think, "This, This is really good. That honors God. Or an engineer. You know that feeling when you've done your part in designing something useful in the world. A structural solution for somebody building a house on the difficult soil of Williamsburg. Designing the housing of a nuclear reactor in our next aircraft carrier. Or an architect designing a building that is beautiful, user-friendly for tourists, and historically accurate for the 18th century. You know what it's like when you step back from and see that design, one that not only gets the job done, but it is beautiful, it is skilled, it is an elegant solution. God cares about that. He delights in your good work. Okay, Work was created good. And the scope of our work encompasses everything that God calls us to, all the tasks we find in, our, in the world to which we put our hands. And God is there in those tasks. But thirdly, the dilemma of our work. Because we can talk about a floor beautifully mopped and a ship beautifully built, but we know that our work is so often frustrating, isn't it? And frustrated. Because our work, like everything else, was affected by the fall. Again, we keep saying this, but we're getting there in chapter 3 of Genesis. But something tragic and terrible has gone on in this world. As mankind turned its back on our good creator and went its own way. And there was a fracture right down the middle of creation. Creation remaining, but somehow broken. We, as God's image bearers, remaining broken. Yet seeing that fractured and splintered in our lives. And one of the effects of the fall is that our work is often frustrated. It's often ineffective. It's the reason why some work in the world is mindless and dehumanizing. It's why work has become not only work but labor, laborious, burdensome. The effects of the fall. I saw this also... (laughs) Yesterday, One of the sources of low-level stress at times in my marriage is on a Saturday when we have a list of things that we need to accomplish and I will tell my wife, okay, I've got this project outside to do and it will take this amount of time. And the problem is it takes three times longer than that. So I decided to test this yesterday. Elizabeth, I'm going out to do this project in the backyard. And I looked at my watch and it was 11.30. And I was wise enough not to make a comment out loud, but I thought to myself, 20 minutes... 20 minutes and I'm done. Let's see. So I get out there. uh, And after uh, the prep work for that project took significantly longer than I expected. And after one of the major tools I needed for that job broke and I had to spend an hour and a half and involve a neighbor in fixing it and get back. By the time I walked back in the door, two hours and five minutes later. And I thought, this just is not the way it's supposed to go. Right? Our work, even when ultimately there's some success in it, it is frustrating. Frustrated. It affects the, our work itself. It affects us as workers. Here's the way, the many ways our work can go wrong in the way we think about it. Just as workers, how often do we think of our work simply as the means to a paycheck? And when that's the case, that means that the greatest investment of our time in the entire week is spent with the sole intent of being somewhere else, doing something else. Okay, when our work is reduced simply uh, to uh, to a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with the paycheck. Or what about this? When we uh, turn away from our work wrongly, either through laziness maybe. Maybe we don't show up at work at all. Maybe we do it poorly. Maybe we turn away from our work into some sort of escapism. We come home and what do we do? We immerse ourselves that will make us think of anything but the work ahead of us or the work we still need to do among our family and at home when we try to escape. Or then there's the very opposite way work can go wrong when work becomes everything to us when it becomes the thing our work our life is uh built around it could be that you use work as an escape when we do that it's usually an absorption in one kind of work in order to avoid another maybe it's the work that you do outside of your home that you become absorbed in so you don't have to think about what's going on inside your home the work that you stay late for so that you don't have to be home to uh Navigate the difficulties of dinner hour with your spouse and your children. Work as escape. Or maybe just work as obsession because when you look at your work, you see the thing that gives you your validity and place in life. You look at work and you say, this is the thing that defines me. This is my existence. I am what I do. I am what I produce. Now, when that goes well, When your work is going well, then you are content and amiable and secure, right? you got that little sign that hangs around your neck, and I've got it too, that says, I matter. My work is going well. And in smaller print it says, and I might matter just a little bit more than you do also. (laughs) You know, we tend to return that favor for others as we are validated for our work, because when we see success around us, we give respect. And when we see failure or underachievement, we condemn, even with only the slightly upturned nose, the whispered, dismissive comment, or worst of all, completely ignoring the one who just doesn't measure up. That's when it goes well. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we are the ones who fall short, when we are the ones who don't produce? We're not just disappointed, we're crushed. Doesn't just seem like a setback; it seems like the end because the thing we have built our life around, our work, is suddenly not feeding us the way we are used to, and the way we expect it to, the way we demand that it would. If that's the case for you, what happens? What happens when we retire? If you spend a life building your building your world around your work, that work could be your career. That work could have been the kids that you raised that have now moved out of the house. What happens? Then, too, we are undone. No sense of validation. This this work that used to fill me now, an utter void in my life. Or these children to whom I look to say, "I'm important." Look at them. Look at what a success they are. Look at the good job they got. Look at the good education they got. Look at my beautiful grandkids. When they're undone, when when they are gone, we are undone. Or maybe it makes us live in the past with that phrase. So quickly in the back of our mind that fuels us, let me tell you what I've done. It could be the guy who manages in every social situation to somehow bring it back to that moment of glory his senior year in high school at the state basketball tournament where he hit the winning shot. His moment of glory, stuck in the past. Or it could be the retired executive who never fails to bring up his list of corporate experience and success. Could be in retirement that we trade our work idol, this work thing, for a new recreational work idol. In life now, instead of our career, it shrinks down to the size of your golf score. Or it shrinks down to the collection of pictures that you keep in your wallet of your grandchildren, right? When work rules us. You see, our work creates us with or brings before us a dilemma. Our work doesn't work right. We as workers don't work right. We need something. We need help. We need redemption. The redemption of our work. Redemption is one of those words used in the Bible that we don't use every day. And it has to do with being bought back, being rescued from something. As we're going to see as we go on in Genesis, we're going to keep pointing to the central story of the Bible that starts here in Genesis of a world desperately in need of God that finds at the heart of that story redemption brought to us through the person of Jesus. God coming after us, His lost and errant people, coming not simply with words, not simply with uh, warm, fuzzy desires for us, but with a determined Step towards us, to rescue us, to grab us, to bring us home, to bring us forgiveness and life through the person of His Son, Jesus. The work of redemption. That is the central story of the Bible. But the question for us this morning is, what in the world does that have to do with our work? What does it have to do with our work? Is the Bible's story of redemption, is that one simply of the... The only problem we have is that we are people spiritually alienated from God, and God wants us to bring bring us back into a personal relationship with him. It's kind of a trick question. Because <laughs> that matters enormously. It is the story of that. But that's not the, that's not the full range of the story. That's not the, that's not the full landscape of what God is doing in redemption. He comes not simply to bring us a spiritual salvation, though it is that. He comes to make everything right. He comes to restore our lives. He comes to bring us into relationship with Him, but that also means He comes to bring us back into the relationships in the world as He created it to be. It means He came back to redeem not only our souls, but our work. Remember, work was in the garden before everything went wrong. Part of Him bringing us now into His kingdom means that as He sends us out into the world as agents of His kingdom, He wants that to deeply affect our work. He wants us to affect the way we think about our work, ourselves as workers. And it means many of the things that we might expect. He wants us to be people who do our work with integrity. He wants us to be people who do our work in a winsome way around our neighbors and co-workers in such a way that they see the goodness of God in the quality of our work. He wants us to do work that is actually good for mankind. He wants us as we step into our work, honestly, however menial it might be, with an attitude of this too is a part of redeeming all of creation, bringing order back into the world. Whatever that might be that God has put before my hand, it is a part of his good work of showing the goodness of creation. I can enter into that even in this moment, even in this work. But it means also that as we, as people who are finding our redemption in Jesus and put our hope in Him, when we look ahead to the day when Jesus actually returns, brings the kingdom with Him, reestablishes God's kingdom here on earth, that's the last picture in Revelation, heaven coming to earth, God's dwelling coming to earth. Earth restored, renewed. A world in which our work is going to flourish as it was meant to where it's not going to have the frustration that it so often has right now. We're to do our work now with our eyes on that great day, saying our work now matters because it is a foretaste of that great beauty of work that is to come. He is coming back. He's going to make all things new. And we participate in the beauty and restoration of creation even right now. The picture the Bible gives us of that kind of world remade with all work, giving its fruitful bounty, giving its beauty, of culture, having been built by mankind in all its variety, giving praise to God. Here's a snapshot of that. Listen to this. This comes from Revelation chapter 5. It speaks, John as seeing a vision, God's throne in heaven. It says this, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, and with the, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out all into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, "And here it is: worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and your with your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What do we have a picture of here? Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall." Ruling over creation justly, rightly, but now not simply one pair of people on the verge of the fall. But instead, at this great culminating point of history, when, when Jesus has come back, when all has been made right, when there is no more curse. And we see not just one man and one woman, but cultures myriads of people in all their rich cultural diversity giving praise to God work done well culture built directed and in the proper direction towards our God that's what he's doing that's what he's making out of your work and my work that's what he's doing out of the ways we step into the world and create culture around us he's going to use those for good just a couple things in conclusion how do we work this out Just a couple ideas. Maybe grab hold of those two images that we talked about a moment ago. What are you in your work? What are you called to be? You're called to be a creator and a cultivator, an artist and a gardener. That working in a garden, working in an office, working in a home, we're called to be creators and cultivators. That means we're to step into our work and to the degree to which you... Have choice over the work that you do. Think about your work. Students, for example, at this point in your life, you have taken relatively few forks in the path. You have lots of opportunities ahead of you. Which paths are you going to walk down? Which ones are you going to pursue as you prayerfully consider what God might call you to do in this world? What would it it mean for you to be a part of His kingdom in a full way? What would He have you pursue? How would He have you use the gifts that He's given you? Students stand on the verge of a life of professional work. Many of us stand on the other side of it in a time of retirement, a time of great opportunity for you, as in many ways the choices have opened up for you as well. Because remember, work is not a job, and work is not something that necessarily gives you a paycheck. What are you going to do with your time? What are you going to do with your decades of experience? What are you going to do with the years in which you have been following God and He has been teaching you more and more what it means to be one who works for the good of His kingdom? What's it going to mean for you at this stage in your life to continue to step into that central calling of mankind, work? Some of you have stepped into retirement and looked upon it as a life of leisure, and you're wondering why you're discontent. Because God didn't invent retirement. We did. It might not have been a good idea. To have the freedom in life where you're not dependent on a salary, where you're able to spend your time in different ways, is a great boon. How will you use it? It affects for us, as we step into our work this week, how we do what we do as artists and gardeners. How are we going to be creative? How are we going to do with integrity? How are we going to do with beauty? How are we going to cultivate what God has given and put before us? And it also affects for us why we do what we do, whatever that is we put our hands to. We come back to this often, but if you remember this uh, central way that Jesus answers this question, someone comes to him and says, What does the law say? What are we required to do? How can we know that we're being faithful and God... Answer. Jesus answers, he says, Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Why we do what we do, the work that we do. Keep those two things before our eyes. Our work also is about loving God and loving others. How do we work in such a way that it reflects a love for God? And it is of practical love to those around us. Artists and Cultivators stepping into our world, doing good things with, with what God has given us. As workers, with our work turned towards Him, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you, you would teach us about work because we know the dilemma that we are in, how much of it feels so broken. But you have created work good. You've given us literally a world of opportunities before us to make something of the world. May we honor you how we shape it, cultivate it, and in what we create as we follow You, uh, our Creator. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.